So turn to Exodus 2. We're going to start in verse 11 because we kind of covered um, some other stuff last week in chapter 2. So Exodus 2, verse 11. But before we jump right into this, I want to share a little story with you guys. Um, every, when I was a kid, we would go on vacation every winter. I grew up in Southern California, so we would go to a place called Big Bear, and we would get a cabin in Big Bear, and my parents would just kind of rent different cabins each winter. Um, and we didn't have like a ton of money, so they were pretty rustic, you know? Uh, but I remember this one year that we went, it was the one year that stood out the most, because we got this really cool cabin, it was like a three-level cabin, it was in, built into a hill, and it had like these spiral staircase, and it had a pool table in the basement, and it was was just really cool. We went up there for like a week. Uh, but the thing I remember about this week in particular, which is why it stands out to me, this one cabin in particular, is because a lot of really bad stuff happened to my dad in this cabin while we were there for the week. My dad got really hurt a lot while we were at this cabin. Um, and uh, the, one of the first days we were there, we went sledding, and my dad just like fell off a sled or something and ran into one of the posts that holds up the deck. Uh, a couple days after that, my dad's getting out of the shower, and it's one of those showers that has like the bar above the door, you know? like the ones that click when you open and close them, like with the glass door. And he was getting out. My dad's kind of tall, and he's a little hair challenged on the top. And so he's getting out of the shower, and he scrapes the top of his head on that bar, like really hard. And it was not pretty, right? And he was like like, like yelling in pain in the bathroom. Um, and then a couple of days after, I think my dad fell down the spiral stairs, like the spiral staircase one bit. And then a couple of days, like one of the last days, we were down in the basement, and he was, uh, he was doing something outside, and and he came in the sliding glass door that was down there, and he was like doing something. He was on a mission, and so he was like kind of charging through the downstairs. But as he was charging through the downstairs, I was like, oh, I really want my dad to see this really cool pool shot that I'm about to make that's really awesome that I've been, my sister and I were setting up like trick shots because like we didn't really know how to play pool, and they had a pool table. So my dad is walking through them really fast, and of course, I like needed to get his attention so he could see the, sh the shot. So I just like yelled his name, like as if there were a life or death emergency happening. You know, um, and so my dad's walking through the room really fast, and he's like on a mission. And I go, "Dad, Dad!" You know, like stop. And so he like, "What?" He freaks out and he turns around, and I'm like, "Watch this!" You know, and I totally missed the shot because I'm terrible at pull. And then he's like, "What? What?" And then he turns around and he runs into a post, and because it was a basement, and the you know the posts everywhere. And this was not like a nice little round post. This was a square four by four post with nice sharp edges. You know, and he just like like walking through the room really fast and like, "Dad, Dad!" You know, what, 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 oh, boom. And then he just like, you know, black eye, right? Black eye. So we come back from this vacation and we do the thing that, uh, that, that families often do when you get back from a long vacation, which is you unpack and then your mom says, I'm not cooking, so we're going out to dinner. So we go to this Mexican food restaurant. I remember being at the restaurant. I remember the waiter saying something about how my dad looked because he had like this band-aid, these band-aids on the top of his head and he had a black eye and he was all messed up. And, uh, and that was the first time that I ever heard the phrase, uh, you should have seen the other guy. That was the first time I remember hearing that. My dad said that to the guy. And my, then my mom's like, oh, you know, the other guy's a cabin, you know? Um, and it's, it's funny because we went, we, yeah, it's like such an awesome line from a mom. Um, she like did the eye roll thing, you know? Uh, I remember that story specifically, even though every year we went to a cabin, and it was a different one, and we had these great times. It was the year that everything kind of fell apart and that my dad was almost destroyed by a cabin. We never went back, believe it or not, to that cabin. Um, 
that was the one that, for whatever reason, I remember the most. And, uh, and I don't know why that is, but I think that's kind of a normal part of growing up, is that sometimes you do these nice things, and it's the things that go completely backwards or haywire or go the last, like, not at all the way you want them to go. Those are the things you remember, right? Those are definitely the stories that you tell later on down the road. And I think that's true in a lot of ways of, of like sort of becoming who we become, especially as we grow up, is that a lot of times when we look back upon growing up or the things that were formative things for us, it was a lot of times the hard things, the difficult things that kind of shape us into who we are. Now, in the moment, we, we can't stand that, right? We don't, we don't want anything to go any way other than according to plan. But, but then we recognize later on down the road, oftentimes that, well, that thing that happened, that thing that was difficult, ended up, it didn't make me into who I am now. And maybe, I'm, and I'm grateful for who I am now, or, or I'm grateful for where God's brought me, or I wouldn't maybe change it in any other, any other way, but that's not typically how we felt in the moment. I remember when I was a youth pastor, and uh, every month or so, we would have students do testimonies in youth group, and I'd always meet with them, and we would talk about their testimony beforehand. And uh, there was nothing, there was nothing like more, there, no one more disappointed than a, than a student trying to prepare their testimony who feels like they don't have a testimony to prepare, right? Because there were the kids in the youth group who would get up and share and they would have like these kind of crazy stories, these difficult things that happened to them. And then I'd meet, but most of the students I met with were always just like, I don't have anything to say. I don't have a story. Nobody wants to hear about my story. It's just kind of like a good life and things went okay and I'm a Christian and I feel okay about it and that's it, right? And it was such a difficult thing as, as, as like, it was such a sad thing to encounter because I think that's, that, that even speaks to the fact that we do recognize that, that it is like, especially as Christians, if you're a Christian and you think about the idea of your story or who you are, your testimony, your testimony is really the story of how God brought you, really how God's been evident in your life and how he's made himself known in your life and how he's kind of shaped you through that. We even then acknowledge that like, it kind of feels like, like the crazier things go or the harder the things that you go through, the, the more that testimony seems to kind of carry some weight with it, right? And yet we still, when given the choice, always just want everything to go according to plan, right? In the moment, we're like, I just want it to go according to plan. That is one of those crazy things about the way we operate. I say all that stuff because this morning we're talking about Moses, the story of Moses. And Moses is a guy who is, has a lot of difficult things happen to him along the way of his life. But what we see, especially in this chapter, is that God uses these things to shape him into someone that God is going to use. And we also recognize how much God's hand is sort of present throughout Moses' life. Uh, we started last week, we looked at his birth, the fact that from birth even, Moses' life was difficult. He was born into the worst situation you could be born into. He was a Hebrew baby boy in, in, born into a, slave, in, into a group of people enslaved where a pharaoh had just passed a law that all Hebrew baby boys would be killed by being thrown into a river. That's literally the worst situation you could be born into, I think. And yet, God redeemed him from that, saved him from that to use him later on in a specific way. But even from the beginning, we read about how Moses' life is full of these difficult challenges. This morning, we're looking at the rest of his life, at least leading up to God really calling him to ministry. And I want to start reading in verse 11 here in chapter 2 to kind of see what that looks like. So, um, so Moses is, you know, he was, he was a baby and he was ultimately raised in the Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh's daughter basically adopts him. Um, and so he gets to live his life. He gets to be raised up with royalty, living the good life of an Egyptian, even though everyone does know from day one, he's a Hebrew. Um, it's pretty obvious to them, and they know that. And so that's kind of his life. 
So starting in verse 11, we read this, and we're going to read, I'll put this one up. We're going to read 11 through 16, I think. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the, in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And we'll stop right there. So, there's a few things that we read about here. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at basically who Moses is. We're going to look at some things that Moses is and that really God is shaping him to be through just what we read about in this chapter. The first one that we read about is this. Um, Moses is a Hebrew. Moses is going through a bit of an identity crisis at this point. The first verse that we just read in that passage said this, that one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to who? To his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. There's a lot of emphasis in that first verse there about who Moses is. He is a Hebrew. He is not an Egyptian, even though he's raised with Egyptians. Now, there was probably a lot going on in his life leading up to this point internally that caused him to leave and to go begin observing what was going on with his people. And as he observes what's going on, he observes someone being beaten, there's something that goes, there's something that switches in him, there's something that changes in him, and he says, probably for the first time in a, in a real decisive way, this is who I am. I am one of these people. These are my people. Now, for him to say that is a big deal because it means a huge change in his life, right? It means he's essentially giving up one identity for another, which is something that we talk about all the time and the idea of becoming a Christian or maybe following Jesus. We read, the best commentary on this is in Hebrews chapter 11, which says this, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So the author of Hebrews is, is really describing what Moses chooses to do. And it's interesting. He says there's two choices Moses can make. He can choose to be one of his people to be really honest with himself about who he is and to now live that out even though it's going to come at great sacrifice, to be mistreated with the people of God. Or he can choose, it says, the fleeting pleasures of sin and, and the treasures of Egypt. So on one hand, and this is totally realistic, right? I mean, you're Moses, you grow up in Egypt, you grow up within royalty. Every day, if you just keep doing what you've been doing, if you keep with the status quo of your life, everything's gonna be fine. You have plenty of money, you have plenty of things, even though, yes, you're an Israelite and people know that about you and they probably judge him for that and he probably is not royalty himself, of course. Still, life is pretty good if you're Moses. 
you have to choose to upset all of this if you're going to choose to truly be this other person that Moses has come to believe that he is. He's a Hebrew. He has to be with his people. This choice for Moses is difficult because the temptation is to ignore his true identity and to live this other way because of how easy it makes his life. And this is incredibly relatable to anybody who has faced the decision of ultimately saying, I'm going to live for God or I'm going to live, with my, live for myself. Because to, to say I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, to say I'm going to live for God, is to say I'm going to sacrifice my life. Sacrificing a lamb or an animal is relatively easy compared to sacrificing yourself in your life. If God had come to Moses and said, uh, I want you to sacrifice an animal and that's it, that would have been a lot easier for him to do than to actually make this sacrifice of choosing to live as an Israelite, to live as a Hebrew. Jesus talks about, you know, dying to yourself and, and losing your life in order to follow, follow him. And what he means by that is, you know, you're born and you grow up and let's say you grow up in a loving family and your parents do a great job of telling you how loved you are and how valuable you are and how wonderful you are and that maybe you can do almost anything. And, and that works and you believe that and you grow up thinking that primarily about yourself, maybe thinking that more than anything else that your parents teach you. And so as a result, really life is simply this. I want to be that person. I want to do anything and I want to be happy and I want to be fulfilled. I want things to go according to plan and here's the plan. And then God invades that. And you begin to see the truth and you see that that, that isn't all that there is and that's not even actually why I'm created and that's certainly not what God calls me to live for. And so what he calls us to sacrifice more than money, more than anything else, is he calls us to sacrifice that saying, I want you to take yourself out of the equation and I want you to now give your life to me. This is what Moses is faced with, recognizing that he's a Hebrew and that he needs to live that way. The choice to follow God always involves sacrifice. You see it with other people in the Old Testament. God, called, God gives Abraham the covenant. But what does he say to him when he gives it to him? He says, you now have to go. You have to leave the land that you live in and you have to go. You have to sacrifice. When God comes to Noah and he gives him the greatest piece of news anyone could ever give, which is the heads up that a flood is coming, the hundred years heads up that a flood is coming. Now I want you to build a boat with your family. But what does he call him to do? He calls him to do something that alienates him from everyone else, probably even towards the end his own family is starting to wonder what the heck is going on with Noah, right? Are we really sure we still want to be connected to this guy? Oh, here comes the water. Okay, we're good, right? But, but God calls Noah to do something that requires sacrifice in the beginning. And this is something that we continually see from the call of God. We see some level of sacrifice and that ultimately saying, I see my real identity. If I'm going to take hold of who I really am, it's going to be difficult. And that's what we see in Moses, recognizing that he is now a Hebrew. But he comes to this conclusion These are my people. And what drives him to that conclusion is the conviction, the deep conviction of what he sees around him. He sees things happening around him, and we see him respond to that because he goes out and he watches a slave master beating a slave, and he kills him, buries him in the sand. 
And then he goes on and he finds some Israelites and they're arguing. And he goes to the one that is wrong. Apparently it's clear that one's wrong. And he says, why are you wrong? What are you doing? And they said, nobody asked you. We don't want you to help us. We don't need you to help us. But what we see Moses doing, and we'll even see it a little bit further along as well, is Moses is basically going around trying to do the right thing. The other thing that Moses is, apart from being a Hebrew, is he is a person who is very, very zealous. Okay, Moses is... Moses sees the injustice in front of him, and it is overwhelming to him to a point that he has to react, even to the point of killing someone. He is overwhelmed by the injustice. He says, this is not right. This is not how it should be, and I cannot stand it, not even with this one Egyptian, but also with the Israelites that are fighting. I was telling the first service, I think of this as like the Batman phase of his life because he's basically like, I know, I'll just go do good during the day and then I'll go back to the palace maybe at night and I can be a rich guy, right? And I can live the nice life of the Egyptian, but then I'll go out during the day and I'll, I'll maybe bring justice to the Israelites and maybe I'll help them stop arguing amongst themselves, right? I mean, isn't that what God would want me to do? God raised me up here in Egypt. I know all this stuff. I'm not a slave. I don't have the slave mentality maybe. And so I've got, I believe that I can change this. I believe that I can do something with this. I believe that I can, that I can bring justice here. What God probably wants me to do is to, is to kill these people who are hurting my family, my brothers and my sisters. Maybe what God wants me to do is he wants me to keep them from being divided, from fighting amongst themselves. It's like, get them together and have some town hall meetings or something and say, guys, 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 don't, 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 don't fight, don't separate. If we stay together, we can be strong and we can overrun this place and we can win. We can take this place over. There's so many of us. Maybe that's what God wants him to do. But what we see in Moses is we see like a passion, really, because he sees something wrong and he wants to see it righted. He is zealous. And what does he do with that? He reacts. Now, this makes sense because, like I said, he left a good life, and he left it because of conviction. People don't walk away from things like that just because pragmatically or practically speaking, it makes sense. It doesn't make sense. You have to be driven away from that, pushed out of that by a conviction that there's something that is truer and righter and more just and better, even if it doesn't make your life easier. And that's what Moses has just done. But what we see in Moses here is so important. We see that this isn't enough, right? Because he doesn't seem to be doing anything good. He doesn't seem to be stopping anything or really helping anything. He doesn't seem to be fixing the problem. In fact, all he's doing is getting himself in trouble. He's getting himself in trouble with the Egyptians. He's getting himself in trouble with the Israelites. He's a guy full of passion, full of zeal, wanting to see all the wrongs righted, and he has no idea how to do it. And he's bad at it. And and we recognize that. We see that in the way that he's reacting. I'm sure none of us can relate to this, right? You just see something wrong. You see the injustice. Or or, or you feel conviction about something. And you're like, I don't know what to do, but I'm just going to do something. I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to react. I'm going to react in any situation that I can that God presents me with. And you often don't see yourself getting very far with that. You don't see it changing things very much as a result. Because you need to be able to do more than that. One commentator said this, they said, murder is simply anger taken to its logical conclusion. Murder is anger taken to its logical conclusion. That's why when Jesus talks about murder, he talks about anger. Moses' anger has driven him to murder. But God needs somebody. He wants someone a lot more than just a person who's angry at all the wrong things he sees. 
And again, I'm sure none of us can relate to that. We're angry at all the wrong things we see. We're angry at the state of things. We're angry at some injustice or, or something that we see. And, and, and we believe that that's, that's maybe all we need to be. God just needs a lot of angry people. He needs a bunch of people worked up and upset and, 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 and wanting things to change and, and then just saying, we'll just figure it out. We just got to at least, let's just agree that we're angry, right? And we'll start there. We'll agree that we see injustice. We'll start there. We'll have passion and zeal. We'll start there. But Moses' anger was misguided. It wasn't focused on the right things. It wasn't focused on the right people. It wasn't even focused on the right problem. And this is something that we do all the time. And this is why we read about this in Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, we continually fix our minds and our eyes on physical things so much that we react constantly to the things that are happening right in front of us, that we put the problem on people and on institutions and on places and on governments and on everything. But we fail to recognize what the Bible tells us again and again and again and what God ultimately shows Moses, which is there is something much bigger behind this. There is something much bigger going on. And if you can't use your passion and your zeal to open your eyes to begin to see something bigger, you won't ever realize the fight that you really need to fight. You won't ever realize the thing that you're really being called to do. But Moses' anger was misguided at this point. It was immature. Now, God will come to Moses, it's a spoiler, he will come to Moses and he will show him who to focus his energy on. He'll show him who to bring his case before, but it will not be something Moses wants to hear. Why? Because it will be much bigger than Moses ever wanted to take on. And that's usually the case. The true problem, the true enemy, the true issue is usually much bigger than maybe we want to believe or than we think that we could ever take on in any way or we could ever engage with. And so what it ultimately is going to require of Moses is a tremendous amount of faith and maturity to believe that he can be used by God to do anything that, that God is saying needs to happen. Now, oftentimes the opposite of passion and justice, let's say justice, this idea of Right and wrong, okay? I see right, I see wrong, and I want to see justice happen. Oftentimes, the enemy of justice is pragmatism. Pragmatism is kind of the mindset or the approach that, well, this is what works, so it's what we have to do. This is the way the world is, so that's just what we have to deal with. Let's only try to work with what we think we can actually accomplish and what can happen, Listen, let's just acknowledge this is the system that we live in. This is the way that things are. Let's be practical about it. Let's be realistic about it. Now, pragmatism isn't a bad thing, but it is often the opposite extreme from this zeal that Moses has. And pragmatism by itself is often the reason why some of these institutions, like the Israelites being in slavery, is, 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 is the result of. 
It, it, it breeds this kind of like thinking that goes, listen, let's just be honest, okay? These guys, have been, we've been slaves for hundreds of years. This is not going to change. Let's be real about where we live and what we live in and the way that things are. And let's not get all worked up about justice and what's right. And you have this zealous person going, no, but this is right. No, but this is what we have to do. And then you have this person over here going, don't even, it doesn't matter. You're not, you're going to get all worked up for nothing. We can't change it. We can't do it. We can't do something. Let's focus on what we can do. Let's focus on what we can have. Some of us are so pragmatic and we don't think that God expects things to actually change. We don't expect things to ever actually be different. We walk by the pain, we walk by the suffering, we walk by the oppression, we walk by the injustice and we say that's just the way the world is and that's the way it's gonna be. And the last thing I need to do is get all worked up about it. And there's some of us who are so passionate and so zealous but we believe that that's all that it takes. Could you imagine for a moment if a doctor who, I mean, any good doctor is someone who is really hopefully passionate about saving people's lives, about helping people, about making people well. But could you imagine if that was the only test for being a doctor? If like the final exam, I know there isn't a final exam, but if there was a final exam for being a doctor, shows you how much I know. Um, I know that I'm wrong, I know that much. If there was a final exam for being a doctor and it was basically just you have to prove your passion for people being healthy and well for people and their well-being, right? That wouldn't produce the best doctors in the world. We need something more than that. We need to know that people with that passion have done something to actually now know what the heck they're doing with that passion, right? We want to know that they're actually trained and that they're equipped. We want to know that practically speaking that they've actually thought some of this stuff through. I can't think of a better example of this of this combination of a person who was passionate and zealous about something and yet really, really thought through how to actually make a difference, then, um, uh, well, I'll say this first. If you, if you look at the Israelites and them being in slavery for this many hundreds of years, there are so many natural correlations between this and what the, what the Jewish people will go through many years later in the Holocaust. And we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that a lot as we talk about Exodus because you see it happen again in the lifetimes of some of the people here even. You, you see these people that are being persecuted and that are being killed and that are being ultimately tried to just be kept down. And there's this incredible uh, story that was ultimately made into a movie, uh, Schindler's List. And this is the story of this man, Oscar Schindler. And he is the best example I can think of of this, of exactly what it takes to make the kind of difference um, in a situation like this. Because this man was a German-born businessman. He was really rich, and he was about as pragmatic as they come. He was about as practical as they came. He had all the connections. He was part of the Nazi like sort of party in the sense that he ran with all of those people. And he lived in Poland, and as they began just completely like evacuating towns and sending Polish Jewish people off to the concentration camps, he realized that he could, he could bribe officials with his money, and he could get them to, to bring these Jewish people to come work in his factories, and that if they could work in his factories, and he could make the case that he needs them. I need them to build things for the, Jewish, for the German people. I need them to help build uh, uh, munitions and pots and pans and all these different things. I need these people to work for me. Don't send them to the concentration camps. And he saved thousands of people by doing that. By using his own money, in the end, he was broke, 
by, by, to, to bribe officials, to use all the connections and all the relationships and everything that he had to be able to thoughtfully, like, end, like, to, to do something to make a difference in these horrible atrocities that were happening right in front of him. And it was his passion and it was the desire for justice that drove him to do that. And the crazy thing about it is, uh, is well, that's not the crazy thing about it, but something else incredible about it is if you, I was, I was reading this interview with Steven Spielberg who made the movie Schindler's List. And he said that it was so frustrating for him because he got the idea, he read the book about Oscar Schindler and he started writing the movie and working on it uh, while he wanted to make the movie, but he was making another movie. He was making this random movie called Jurassic Park. And he was in the middle of making that movie when he really, and he said he was, it was driving him crazy and he began to really resent T-Rexes because he said he was spending his days filming T-Rexes chasing Jeeps and he was spending his nights thinking and crying about this movie Schindler's List and trying to make it happen. And his wife and his friends close to him said to him, they said, just finish this movie, make it good, we'll make some money and we'll make the next one and that one will make a really big difference. And even he feels the need to take the passion that he has as like an artist and to use the, 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 the maturity and the practicality that comes from knowing what he's doing and saying, how do I really thoughtfully make a difference here? All of these things, all of that stuff, Moses didn't really have that. Moses had the passion, he had the zeal, he wanted to make a difference, and he didn't know how. And he wasn't doing a very good job of it. And it ended up getting him kicked out of Egypt. But one of the things that we see is we see God orchestrating so much of this. This was not just Moses doing whatever he wanted. So much when we look through Exodus, we see God setting things up so that he can cause things to happen. And people have an important role in it, and people can certainly choose to not be a part of it. But ultimately, we see God using these things to bring Moses to a place where he is going to shape him into a leader. He's going to shape him into someone who actually will ultimately make a difference. And so I want to look, I want to look at the next part of this, which picks up in verse 16. This is too, probably too small. You can't read it up on the screen, but you can look at it in your Bible. Exodus 2:16 to 22 says this. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rule, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called him his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. You can stop there. So God brings Moses. Now here is exactly what has just happened to make it perfectly clear. Moses has come to be awakened to this reality that he is indeed a Hebrew. He is an Israelite. He is not an Egyptian. And ultimately, that leads him to being banished from Egypt. But here's the crazy part. Where does he go? He actually goes into the promised land. Midian is in Canaan, which is the promised land. He leaves Egypt and immediately goes to the promised land. He finds a man who was a priest, who, like, who, who, who is a shepherd, and it says that he is content to dwell with this man. So to sum it all up for you, here's what happens. Moses 
gets kicked out of Egypt, run out of Egypt, and will now spend the next 40 years living the life that every other Israelite would only dream of living. He moves out to the promised land. He lives as a shepherd. He gets welcomed into this great big family. He gets handed a role in the family business, and he gets to live there and be happy and be content and have sheep and have kids. And like that gets to be his life. He gets to experience freedom. God takes Moses out of Egypt and he shows him freedom. And this is something that God does oftentimes. When he wants to use somebody, he gives them a taste of like what is to come. He says, I want you to experience the goodness of this thing. Now Moses, I'm sure, is thinking, wow, God's really cool. He's really nice. He's giving me a reward for my difficult life of growing up as Egyptian royalty. You know, I had like eight seconds of scary things happen to me. And now God's rewarding me. I'm sure none of us feel this way, right? I've had this amazing, comfortable life. Ten seconds of bad things happen. Okay, God's rewarding me. My life's easy again. This is good. This is how God works for everyone probably. And God will ultimately call him out of this, which is going to be very hard for him. Why? Because he's comfortable. Because he's free. Because he lives in the land of milk and honey. Because everything is so great. Moses' story has been one of privilege. He was rescued from the Nile. He wasn't raised as a slave. And he's given this good life of freedom, of family. He will grow comfortable. He will grow content. But there's also something very important that he will do, and it is this. He will learn how to shepherd. He will become a shepherd. Throughout Scripture, we see that when God wants to use people, he often uses shepherds. When it was God's turn to pick a king, who did he pick? He picked King David, who is a shepherd. There are so many theological statements about who Jesus is. He's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. But when Jesus practically speaks of himself, functionally who he is in our lives, through the I am statements in John, one of the ones that he says is, I am the good shepherd. If you want to think of me as something, think of me as a shepherd. Why? Because a shepherd is patient. They are diligent. They are gentle. They are caring. They are protective. They are fierce when they need to be. And most importantly, they lead you to food and they lead you to water. And if you know anything about sheep, you know they can't find food themselves. They can't find water themselves. They need a shepherd. Sheep walk off cliffs if you don't stop them from walking off of cliffs. And what God is going to do is he is going to actually now take all of the zeal and the passion and the justice that Moses had and he is going to now refine him through this 40 years of living in freedom in paradise and living as a shepherd and learning what it means to have these qualities and do these things. If you are called in any way to serve for the gospel, you're ultimately called to shepherd other people. That might sound crazy, like, wait, that's not how it works, right, that we're all called to be shepherds. But if, if we are all called to make disciples, which we are, then we are called to shepherd people. If we are all called to reach the lost, that will only involve people, which means we're called to shepherd people, which means we're called to be like this. Now, the reason shepherding is so, such a big deal is because for all of its importance, right, the shepherd is clearly, like, they're clearly more capable and knowledgeable than the sheep. But do you know what a good shepherd is always judged by? Is their service to the sheep. If their sheep don't trust them, they're not a good shepherd. If they are not willing to serve their sheep, they are not a good shepherd. 
And so no matter how great some shepherd gets, I'm sure there are famous shepherds in the world, I, I don't know, probably, you know, uh, shepherding competitions and whatnot, but like ultimately a famous, I should have done research on that, I'm sorry guys, I'm just throwing stuff out there now. But ultimately, you can call yourself all these things, you can have a big flock full of sheep, but if you are not serving them and protecting them, and if they do not trust you, then you're not a shepherd. And I don't know if you noticed this from the beginning of Moses' story here, but the Israelites didn't trust him, and they didn't want him to lead them, and they had no reason to trust him and want him to lead them. What we also see what happens here is really key, which is this. Rule, or we better know him as Jethro, which his father-in-law, ultimately ends up really discipling Moses. He brings Moses in. He shows him how to be a shepherd. And he's a priest. And so he talks to him about God, and he teaches him about God. And what we'll see next week when we look at like God coming to Moses as the burning bush is we'll see the role his father-in-law has in that. And what we see there is so important because this whole idea where God takes all the raw materials and then he turns it into something useful, this thing is discipleship. And he uses other people along that process. There are people in my life who came in at pivotal points and God used them as they discipled me and showed me what it is to follow Jesus and show me even what it is to shepherd. And I had a chance to talk with one of them. This, uh, my, he, was, he was my youth pastor and then he was my pastor for years. His name was Dennis. And I had a chance to talk with him a couple years ago. He came through town and he came to stay at my house. I remember talking to him and I remember vividly having to say to him, like, I'm not sure how to articulate this to you. I'm not sure how to say it without it sounding super weird, but your role in my life is so significant that it almost feels like you're responsible for everything that came after because it was so huge in forming me into the way I understand Jesus, the way I understand what it means to, to shepherd other people, the way I understand what scripture tells us to do and how we have to live according to it no matter how difficult it is and no matter how much sacrifice it involves. That, that we must be discipled in order to, to be able to figure these things out and do these things. And it's awesome that we see Jethro doing this. So this is all about Moses, all these great things about Moses. That's great, that's nice. God loves Moses. God's doing great things for Moses. What about all those other people, right? Well, we, we, we jump back at the very end of chapter two and we read these last few verses in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God remembers his people. Now, this same word used for remember... Uh, we see the same Hebrew word used uh, when Noah's on the ark and the beasts. It says, God remembered Noah and the beasts. Kind of to say, yeah, you know, all that rain and that flood and everything that was happening and they were in the ark going, is this thing gonna end? Uh, scripture tells us God remembered them, okay? And that word, when you translate it out, the Hebrew word, uh, it means to recall information or events with a focus on responding in an appropriate manner. So it's like to recall, but with the intent of responding. So what that looks like is this. If you have, this is in incredibly like, like almost calloused way to say it, but it is the best picture that you could get. If God had a to-do list, and as he goes to things on that list, he recalls something as it is now the appointed time to do that thing, okay? He says, now it is time for me to do something here. And so I recall, I remember this thing as I go to do it. Just like you go back to something and you say, now I'm gonna take care of that thing. 
Now we know, even in Genesis, when, when God speaks to Abraham, he tells him about what's going to happen. It says in Genesis 15, then the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So God has already, he had said to Abram this, God has already kind of said, this will happen, it will happen for a certain period of time. And so this idea that God remembers doesn't mean that he forgot them. It doesn't mean that he couldn't hear them and he wasn't listening. In fact, one of the incredible things that we read is these words that are emphasized, that God heard their groanings, that he remembered them, that he sees them, and that he knew them. These are all the things that if you're an Israelite, you just want to know that God is doing these things. You're like, is God hearing me? Is he hearing me? Because I'm not sure if he is. Does God see me? Does he see what's going on down here? Does he see what's happening? Does God remember us? You know, his people, the ones that were such a big deal? Does God really know us? That word know is like an intimate knowledge of someone. That's like the way you know a person through a relationship. That's not just I'm aware that you exist in the universe. Does he really know us still? Because if he did, why would we be here in this situation? God didn't forget them, but he chose this as the time to respond. Now, this is the point in Exodus where we have to begin wrestling with something. And you could go two ways with this. And if you go one way, you're totally wrong but it's a way easier way to go. And if you go another way, it's right, but it's harder to swallow. And it's this. Uh, the reason why, one of the reasons why God's people are, are, are not rescued and redeemed immediately from slavery and bondage is because God intends to use these people, their story, everything that is happening for a reason. He's going to use them to reach the whole world. He's going to use them to reach everyone. God, ultimately, his desire, he doesn't save me for me. He saves me and sends me out to you. He doesn't save us for us. He saves us and sends us out to the rest of the world. And what's really hard is this. This is what I mean when I say it's harder to swallow, but it's true. Is this. The Israelites did not deserve to be rescued. We don't deserve to be rescued. The reason why it doesn't sit well with us when we see people suffering in scripture is because we believe there is people. They're supposed to be better. He's supposed to love them more. They deserve to be rescued. They deserve to be set free. But the Bible doesn't paint that picture for us. In fact, what it paints for us is, is, is that a God who again and again and again goes out of his way to make a way with his people, but it is through his grace and his mercy. It's not because the people deserve it. People keep blowing it. The people keep doing things. The people keep violating covenants. God continues to come back to his people. He continues to honor what he said he's going to do. He continues to show them grace. He continues to show them mercy. It is not because they deserve it that God will ultimately come and rescue them. God is not going to come redeem them and restore them because they're so amazing. They're going to be able to be good people because he redeemed and restored them. Okay? I can be good because I've been saved. I've not been saved because I'm so good. And the difference there is everything. He saves us for the rest of the world. 
And that is what God is intending to do here. God saved Moses. He got him out. He gave him an amazing life. But next week is, you know, they pull you back in, right? That's what Moses is going to be saying in some great. I got pulled back in. Why? Because God didn't save Moses for Moses. He didn't give him freedom for him. He gave him freedom for them and for others. And why do I say all that so much? This morning, um, we're going to worship, we're going to take communion, and the reason we take communion, the reason we take it as often as we do, but not too often, I think, is because um, we are prone to drift away from knowing that Jesus is the one who's accomplished anything. We're prone to drift away from knowing that it's his sacrifice. We're prone to drift away from knowing that we don't really deserve this. And so we stop and we do exactly what Jesus commanded his disciples to do, which is we take communion and we do so in acknowledgement of the fact that, that he has paid the price for us. It is because he is so good and he sacrificed that we can be saved, that we can now go and we can live and we can be good and that we can bring the gospel to other people. So as we worship, we're going to pass around communion to everybody and uh, we're going to sing, we're going to, we're going to worship and And then after the first song, I'm going to come back up and I'll lead us through communion. You can take it on your own if you want before that, or you can wait and take it with all of us. And as we worship, we're going to praise God. We're going to praise him for the fact that it is him. It is what he has done. It is who he is. And that we get to live gratefully as a result of that. And that he wants to use us, even if we're a bunch of overly practical, completely passionless people, or if we're a bunch of zealous, overly excitable, passionate with no idea or plan whatsoever what we're going to do with it kind of people. That God wants to use us. He really wants to shape us. And he wants to do it out of his grace and his mercy. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for who you are and what you've done. We're so grateful for your son. God, we do recognize that um, that we, we like the idea of you rescuing people from bondage and slavery because we think there are good people and they deserve to be rescued and we like stories that end like that. But God, this is a story of a people that many of us know where it's gonna go. We know what it's gonna lead to. It's not gonna lead to an incredibly perfectly faithful people. It's not gonna lead to um, a, gr- a great perfect nation. It's gonna lead to something much different than that. And so God, we depend on you and your goodness and your perfection and your grace, not our own. We worship you and praise you and and we just thank you for the sacrifice your son made, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen. God, that uh, that is what we sing because that is what we can boast in, Father. Not that we have done great things ourselves, but that we have simply called out and that you have answered us, Lord. Uh, That you are the great redeemer, that you are the one that takes uh, the raw materials that, that is us and, and you shape us and form us into things that you can use, that you take broken people and that you redeem us and form us into healed people, that you take people in sin and that you heal us and you make us clean, Father. God, it's all done by you and we are so grateful for the fact that that is our, that you are our God. Father, we know that regardless of where we land on the spectrum, whether we're filled with passion or can't possibly think beyond the practicalities of the way the world just seems to work all the time, 
we know that your desire is to continue shaping and molding us just as you did Moses, God. That you use the circumstances of our lives, that you use the really good things and the really, really bad things and difficult things to shape us and form us into people who aren't meant to live for ourselves, not to be happy and good for ourselves or our own families even, but so that more can be reached, God, so that more can hear your word, Father. That is our prayer, that we would be that as a people, Father. It's in your name that we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.